Peace be with you, church. Amen. Thank you. Welcome to Redeemer. We are in the middle of a series through the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that in the Blue Pew Bible under the chair in front of you or under your chair on page 974. Uh, we're in the book of Galatians. We're continuing a series that we've started several months ago. And particularly last week, we just spent a lot of time looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, considering what our God has done to free us from our enslavement to what Paul calls elementary principles in verse 3. We consider what the Son has done to redeem us from our sin and bring us into relationship with God the Father. We consider what the Spirit has done as He's taken up residence in us, has sealed us, and now testifies to the Father that we are sons and daughters, heirs through God's work in the world and in us. Well, this morning, we're entering into a section of the letter. Some of your Bibles might actually have a heading there that says, Paul's concern for the Galatians? Yes, he's absolutely concerned for these churches. And we're entering into a section of the letter where Paul takes time expressing a personal appeal to the churches not to do what they are doing. He's already spent some time showing them evidence. We might even say reminding them of evidence that's already there that the gospel he brought to them at first is the only gospel. Justification by faith in Christ alone. Unlike what the Judaizers are bringing and saying to the Gentiles, that Gentiles must submit to Mosaic law, its demands and its regulations in order to have a proper relationship with God. But that's not the case. And this morning we're going to see Paul is adamantly opposed to the notion that a Christian saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ might try to continue their Christian life by way of legalism or adhering to some form of laws or religiosity instead of by the Spirit of God working in them and through them by faith in Jesus. So if you have your Bible, look with me at Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11, and we will read that together. I'll read it out loud. Just follow along with me. Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point we ought to consider in this text is this. Our former enslavement is real and is really tempting. But knowing God as we are known by God brings ultimate freedom unless you go back. Our former enslavement was real and is still really tempting. But knowing God as we are known by God brings ultimate freedom, here's the warning, unless you go back. And we're going to do that in five points today. Uh, I have them all on the uh, screen one at a time. We're going to walk through these together. First up, enslaved to not gods. That's in verse 8. We're all enslaved to not gods. Verse 8 says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul starts verse 8 with formerly. So first thing to notice is that there's a bit of a compare and a contrast going on in this text. Formerly, he says, connects with the next verse, but now in verse 9. This comparison 
is one of the tools that Paul is trying to use to convince the Galatian churches to hold fast to the gospel that they received from him at first, and therefore we should take notice of that as well. Formerly implies what he's saying here in verse 8 is a past reality. He's reminding the church of where they were before verses 1 through 7. Their present reality now is that they are children of God. We talked about that last week. They're heirs with Christ, and now they live with all the benefits of being a child, of being an heir. But as glorious as that is, Paul feels the need to expose them to their past again, and we'll see why. Now, for clarity's sake, we can understand Paul to be giving us a when and a who in this verse. Those two things are important to see as we compare and contrast. The when, when you didn't know God, that's when you were enslaved to who? You were enslaved to not gods. Now, what are not gods? That's obvious in this, and we need an answer to that question. Well, we need to understand this in order to understand the severity of Paul's pleas as a whole. So, I think in order to understand what Paul means here, we need to actually follow this slave language back, starting in chapter 4, verse 3. Last week, remember, we came across our first uh, exposure to the word elementary principles. So look at verse 3 of chapter 4. It says this, In the same way, we, Jews and Gentiles, also, when we were children before Christ, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, that's interesting. That's different than what he just said. Verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So notice Paul went from principles language to then little g gods language, and then he went back to elementary principles language. And then I want to add this, add verse 10 in here because I think it gives us a little clue of where Paul is headed. He says this, you observe days and months and seasons and years. This is in their enslavement they're doing this. We will look at this verse uh, in a few minutes, but for now I want to show you this. It's in their enslavement, enslavement that they're doing this, and this is basically legalism in a Jewish sense. The Judaizers were telling Gentiles they had to observe the Jewish calendar and keep the Jewish calendar, not as a form of, uh, they're naturally Jewish, but as a form of, earning relationship with God, earning favor with God through Sabbaths and rituals and keeping this calendar. But before we make the conclusion with just those few verses, I actually want to cast the net a little wider, and I want to see what the Old Testament says about not gods, and then I want to show you what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians about them. So let's throw this into the mix. With all these verses in view here, uh, Isaiah 37, 19 says this, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Or Jeremiah 2, has a nation changed its gods? These are all little g. Even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then here, Jeremiah 16, 20. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Now, I want to read two longer passages. Paul explains this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. In 8, just hear me out loud. This is what I, would, I want to read what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. He's talking about idols here. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Remember the text said there are no such gods. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things uh, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And now one more, talking about idolatry, keeping with that theme, 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Is it? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, all of this, bringing all this together, I want to try and provide a definition for elementary principles, not gods. He connects these two things in the text and the things that Paul says here uh, that we're all enslaved to before we know God and his freedom. So from these passages, I have, I have several conclusions. I have five, and we're just going to step linearly down them. Okay, first, first conclusion from all this together. There's only one true God. And little g-gods are not gods at all. There's only one true God. Number two, before we knew God, this text says, we are all enslaved to not gods. We're all enslaved to them. Number three, not gods enslave through idol worship. Okay, There are no other things, no other gods that exist. But in 1 Corinthians 10, we see there's a connection here between not gods and and idol worship. Number four, idol worship is fundamentally the worship of demons. Number five, this is crazy. Legalism and idol worship both fall under the same judgment. This is what Paul is trying to say. To try and consolidate all these down to a simple statement, last week I gave you a definition, but this week I want to tweak it a little bit, okay? Here it is. Elementary principles, in this case, those things that we're slave to, not gods, those things, Paul is saying these things are sin-fueled, demon-empowered idol worship. Sin-fueled, demon-empowered idol worship. Now, we want to maintain a balance here, okay? We don't want to dismiss the work of demons in our world as if they don't exist or it doesn't happen in our world because it does, and it does happen, and they do possess threats. They do pose threats. My apologies. We also don't want to overemphasize the work of demons and therefore blame-shift all of our sin and our rejection of God, our volitional sin, we choose to sin against our God and then blame shift it all onto the devil as if the devil can make us do anything, okay? We need to maintain a balance. Too much weight on either side throws off the balance. That's why we need to get this definition in mind. Enslavement to elementary principles is sin fuel. When I say that, I mean it's our sinful choice to worship gods other than the one true God. 
It's our rejection of him. By nature, we all sinfully reject the one true God and pursue worshiping other things. Those other things can range from a physical man-made idol that's made out of wood or stone or iron that I bow before and I pray to and I give alms to and I expect answers of my prayers from, or it can range all the way to the person that I see in the mirror. Everything I want, I live my life for the worship of me, myself. I, I do what I want. I do what I want for my own happiness. I make my choices for my happiness, what makes me feel best. That's what I worship. I worship me. And you know that you worship yourself and everything in your life revolves around you. If you lose one little one, you start getting angry inside about it. We all worship something. And I say demon-empowered, and I mean this, because the underlying current Behind all idol worship, all worship of some other God besides the one true God is who? The devil. It's the devil at work in the world. The scriptures say principalities and authorities that we can't see. Ephesians 5. The devil leading people away from the living God through lies, deception, fleeting promises that sin's going to give you something that it's not actually going to give to you. And the dangerous thing about this is that these temptations can come from both the outside and the inside of us. They can come from the outside in terms of the temptations from the world, temptations toward the promises of other religions, that they promise you life, that they promise you health, wealth, prosperity, all these other things, temptations to power, you name it, they tempt you towards it. But they also come from the inside. And I'll tell you this, habitual sin opens the door for it. Habitual life sin opens the door for the lies of the enemy, darts just to continue to fly and hit you over and over and over again. If we regularly live our lives for our own passions, our own sins, the devil's going to be right there next to us, pushing us right along and encouraging us in that effort and encouraging us to whatever it is that we're worshiping. And the third thing when I say it is idol worship. And I say that because when we live our lives in sin, when we choose sin, or when the demonic is, is pushing all these things through philosophies and, and empty deceit and all these things, all these religions and temptations that come and get us, they keep us blinded. They keep us blinded to reality. And we worship something other than the one true God who we were created to worship. And the only outcome for this, the Bible is clear, is death. Separation from God in our sin, apart from Christ. The reality is we all, in some form or another, worship something. We worship something. So what do you worship this morning? If I was to say, hey, I'm going to take this out of your life. You're not going to have this anymore. Would it cause you discomfort? Would you get angry when I take that away? What is it that you worship? If we don't worship the one true God, then we worship something else. And this text says, ultimately, we are all enslaved to not gods, enslaved to demons if we live this way. Point number two. So we saw that we're enslaved to not gods. Point number two, we've come to know the one true God. Coming to know the one true God. That's verse nine, first part of verse nine. And praise God that this slavery, all of us are into idol worship. This slavery can be a thing of the past. It can be formerly. It was in the past for the Galatian churches, as Paul said, when they did not know God. So what brought them out of slavery? They came to know God. Which brings us to verse 9. <clears throat> Remember, Paul is doing 
A compare and contrast here, okay? We saw formerly, but now. There's a little contrast with not gods and with gods. That's why I was using that language in the points. But now, Paul gives us the when and the who again. Verse 9. But now that you've come to know God. Let's pause there. When? But now. It's different now. Today. You aren't enslaved to elementary principles now. Why? Who? You've come to know God. This word know, okay, I want you to see that there in verse 9. This word know connects us back to the passages from 1 Corinthians that I read earlier. We've already read these. This is a love for God, this knowing. It's a love for God, and there's a real communion with God, a participation with God in this knowing. And remember back to last week, if we want a relationship with God, we come to God on God's terms. And what has God revealed to us that are his terms and his word for having a relationship with him? If we love God, it shows itself in a repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of our sins. If we desire communion with God like this, a love, a communion with him, it begins with turning away from what enslaves us and turning to Christ by faith. That's where it starts. The Galatians themselves have come to know God themselves. Each one of us here, we can see this. Each one of us has a responsibility When we hear the gospel message, to respond to the gospel message, whether you're an adult or a child, whether you're in our religion, a Christian already, or you're in some other religion as well, you have a responsible, when the gospel is laid out before you, to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel cannot just lay dormant in our minds. For us, as long as that seed lays dormant in our minds, the surface of the soil is marred and the crowds have free range to pluck the gospel up before it takes root in our minds and in our hearts. And in this case, our enslavement to demons puts us in a difficult spot because the last thing our sin wants us to do, or our sin wants to do, is to be exposed by the light. The last thing that the devil wants is to lose his grip on our hearts and on the idols that are in our lives that he's craftily put in the exact place they need to be to trick us and consume us. He doesn't want them to lose their power in the fury of God's saving light shining into our souls. He doesn't want that. We have a responsibility when we hear the good news to recognize where we are. Who are we enslaved to? Are we enslaved to sin and the devil or to Jesus? If we're enslaved to sin and the devil, turn to Christ, who alone can free us from that slavery, who alone has the power, the authority, to remove any of that bondage that binds us here on earth to our sin, to death, because Jesus himself came into the world. What does Galatians 1.4 say? To give himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Sin-fueled, demon-empowered idol worship isn't cute. Sin isn't cute. Demon-empowered idol worship isn't cute. And they both want to drag us into hell in judgment for our sinful rejection against the one true God who alone can save us. They want to blind us from the hope that is set before us in the gospel. That you are enslaved, but there's freedom in Christ. You can be set free in Christ by faith today. If you don't know Christ, know that you don't know God because Jesus is the Lord. And if you don't know God, you are enslaved to those that are by nature not God's. And you will remain enslaved, alienated from the one true God unless you listen to his call. Hear his voice while you have today. Turn to him 
and repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus. And church, this message is the message that your unbelieving friends who don't yet know Jesus need to hear. If you don't have unbelieving friends, I just want to start off with a little application here. Make unbelieving friends. Go to your neighbor's house. Go to your coworker's uh, desk. Make an unbelieving friend, someone who doesn't believe what you believe, who believes something completely different, and befriend them just to be their friend, to love them and care for them. And I would encourage you, step out by faith, love the lost, and make some friends that aren't, that aren't Christians. But think about the relationships you have in your life, okay? If no one else tells you, I want to tell you today, I want to be the one that tells you and challenges you to this. What does it mean to truly be a friend to a person that doesn't know Jesus? What does it mean to really be a friend to them? Well, it means that you share Jesus with them. It means that you tell them about life himself. Do you love your friends? If you love a friend, you want what's best for them, don't you? What's best for your friend? Coming to know Jesus. It's what's best for all of us. It's, we're enslaved to sin and we're blinded and we don't even know that we're lost. But someone comes and they bring the light of the gospel and they share it with us. What better news than that than to hear that Jesus loves me and he died for my sin and I can be set free from my sin. Have this picture in your mind. What is best? Coming to know God. Coming to know God, the picture that is true of both you and me who know Jesus, who were formerly enslaved without God, not knowing God, without a relationship with Jesus, but now know God because somebody told us about him. Somebody told us about Jesus. Your friends whom you love are ensnared, and you have the key. You have the key. Yet many of us meet up with them, hang out with them, have play dates with them, go to ball games with them, have dinners with them all this time while they sit enchained right in front of us and we have the key to unlock it, but we never give it to them. What does that say about our friendship when we do that? Church, real friendship with people in the world looks like being in the world, not being of the world, but not being bystanders in the world. Not passively allowing the world to just blind someone you say you love. Be the friend that sounds the alarm of the gospel, that extends the key of the gospel and beckons him. Hey, take this key. I care about you. You're my friend. You need this key. You need the gospel. But in all of this, recognize your responsibility is not to save anybody. You don't save anyone. Your responsibility before God is to share the gospel. It's their responsibility before God to believe it when you share it. We have a responsibility that we have to take as human beings before a holy God. And this leads us to the third point, the next one. Being known by the one true God. Not just coming to know him. Okay, we're looking at it from the man's side now, right? But being known by the one true God. We're looking at it from God's side. Verse 9 again. It says, or rather to be known by God. Why does Paul do that? Why does he say you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God? Why does he do that? Well, the scriptures are so beautiful. Paul says, or rather, he's not negating the necessity. What we just talked about, you need to make a decision. You need to repent, and you need to trust in Jesus. You must come to God. He's not negating that, but he's actually grounding this further by showing us what is superior. The foundation of our knowing God, and that's what it is. God knows us. He knows us. One commentator writes this. He says, experiential relations between God and his people 
are set out in terms of God's initiative and mankind's response. Relationship with God does not have its basis in man's seeking, it's called mysticism, or doing, that's called legalism, or knowing, it's called Gnosticism. But it originates with God himself and is carried on always by divine grace. Something important to note here is that word know. Because our coming to know God, God is, our coming to know God is grounded in being known by God. So what does this know mean here? What do the scriptures teach us about knowing? Does that mean we just have intellectual knowledge? And I would say no. Schreiner, a uh, 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 popular theologian, gives some helpful comments on this. He did a little word study in the Old Testament. I'm using his work here. He says, God's knowledge of his people harkens back to the Hebrew word for knowing, to know, where God's knowledge refers to his choosing of someone, the setting of his affection upon someone. Hence, God knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of the Jewish people, Genesis 18, 19. He knew Israel and chose them out of all the people groups on earth, Amos 3, 2. He knew Jeremiah before he was born and hence appointed him to be a prophet, Jeremiah 1, 5. So too, the Galatians have come to know God because God knew them first, because he loved them and graciously chose them to be his own. And I would encourage you, church, God knows you. By faith in Jesus, you know God knows you. That means he chose you before the foundation of the world. That means he set his affections on you. That means an eternity before you ever had anything to offer, the little scraps that we do offer of our filthy rags, before we ever had anything to offer, even try to offer, God set you apart for himself to love you, to bless you as his son by faith in the son, Jesus to send his son to die for your sins, to pay your penalty, and then rise to give you new life, and then ascend to the throne where he would allow you and I to participate with him on the throne for eternity. God's knowledge of us, his knowing us, isn't just our names. It's so much deeper than this. It's so much richer than this, so gracious, so merciful. God knows you, saint, and in Christ he loves you with an eternal, unchanging love. First John tells us this. We love God because he first loved us. Think about this. If you love God today, what does that mean? It means God first loved you. Why did he love you first? Not because you loved him. You didn't exist. We see here that God's love for us produced in us a response to his merciful call to repent and trust in the one true gospel. And in this, God receives all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. It never is, never was about works we did then or works we do now in hopes to either achieve God or maintain a relationship with him. We must recognize it was freely given then. And now it is freely poured out without measure on those who have faith in Jesus. Because it is God who initiates. The Son came. He died. He rose. He ascended. And we simply put our faith in Him and His finished work. We have come to know Him because we are known by God. Now, this knowledge language relates to us as well. Because it shows us this isn't just about a mental assent to factual or historical evidence about Jesus. Knowing God involves loving and pursuing a personal relationship with God. It involves a depth of relationship 
that John 15 tells us comes when we love Christ, when we abide in him, and when we keep his commandments. Now hear me, church. Knowing God is different than having knowledge of God. Having knowledge, of, we, anybody can have any knowledge of God that they want. They can have all the right doctrine. They can have everything, dotted, dotted line, numbered out. Everything about God is just perfect. They have all the right doctrine about God, yet their heart is cold and they don't know him at all. So knowledge of God is not the same as knowing God. So let me ask you this morning, what do you base your, your love for God on, your, your knowing God on, is it based on all your doctrinal T's and dotted I's in your doctrine, or is it based on having a personal relationship with Jesus that you're actually growing in, and you can actually see that over time, you're bearing fruit? Do you see that in your own life? If you don't see that, then it's okay to check your heart and ask the question, am I just adhering to some doctrines, or do I actually have a relationship with Jesus? How is your relationship with Jesus? It's one thing to have knowledge of God. It's different to know God. But right knowledge of God does produce a faithful and and deeper knowledge of who he is as a person in relationship with him. Another thing that's encouraging for us is that this, being known by God, should be a a comfort for us as saints. God knows you. you. Do you think about that? Do you meditate on that? Have you ever stopped for one minute and just thought, God knows me. He knows me. Before the foundation of the world, the word says he chose me. Think about that. That's fuel for assurance. The fuel that God knows me fuels my heart with assurance, knowing that God will never leave me and never forsake me. That also provides us with power for resisting temptation to go back to the slavery we used to live in. If you know that God knows you, why would you go back to the slavery you used to live in? This is fuel, power for resisting temptation. God knows me. How can I abandon him? Another thing in terms of evangelism, Paul says, but now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, which one is it? Which one is it? Well, it's both. Scripture says both. We want to maintain the appropriate balance again. And this text helps us do that. This text is so helpful for us as we seek to live lives that are gospel sticky, as we seek to be Christians who live lives of evangelism, as as witnesses to what God has done in our lives, what God has done in others' lives, in our churches and Christians that we know, and what God can do in someone's life who's far from Jesus. This text puts a little bit of fire underneath our seats because in it we see the honest tension between man's responsibility before God to accept and believe the message, and we also see God's power and sovereignty at work behind it all. We see man's responsibility to personally renounce the devil, renounce the world, renounce the flesh, and choose knowing God, but we also see God, who was at work before the foundations of the world, already working these things out, and by his spirit is calling us, beckoning us out of the darkness when we share the gospel with the lost, and he reaches to them. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are another thing that we want to keep in balance. If we put too much weight, like some, on the sovereignty of God, you get people who say things like, well, why why should I evangelize? If God wants to save somebody, he's powerful, he can do it. Well, that goes completely against everything the Lord Jesus taught us about the harvest, about the great commission, about making disciples, the necessity of a person uh, choosing God, the the God of whom they would serve. But then we don't want to fall on the other side too much weight on man's responsibility. And then we fall in the error of saying things like you could lose your salvation. If God saved you, you lose it. Or we could fall in the error of saying God could never save that person. They're too far gone. But that's not true. And friend, you know for a fact that God can save anybody because you and I are both in this room right now. 
And I know many of your stories. God can save anyone. God can save anyone. But we must maintain theological balance, especially as we approach the end of verse 9 into 10. Perseverance to the end falls under the same category of God's sovereignty, his grace, and his power at work within us. And man's responsibility is to persevere by faith in Christ and not turn back. Keep going. Don't turn back. Point number four, turning back to not God's. Turning back to not God's. How can you turn back again? To the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? If everything we've said up to this point is true, if the Galatian churches enjoy fellowship with God, they know God, God knows them, they have a relationship with him that's growing, they've been set free by Christ from their former slavery to these principles, then if all that's true, Paul's question should just come as a big shock. Turning back. What? How can you turn back again? If you've tasted of the freedom in Christ, how could you turn back to slavery? If you've tasted the life of Christ, how could you now choose death? If you've experienced his love, intimacy with the Father, and as a child, personal compassion from God himself, the work of his spirit in you, how could you go back to this oppressive, domineering slave driver whose ultimate purpose is to bury you in the end with him? How could you go back? What lesser thing could pull you away from this kind of grace? Nothing should, but something is pulling them back in this text. Notice the severity of the language. That word turn back, it's the same word used in the New Testament about repentance. When you repent, you turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you turn to God. In this case, he's using that language to do the opposite thing. Paul is saying, The Galatian churches are turning away from God and back to the world, the flesh, and the devil and are ensnared in the same way that they were before. How severe is it to think that someone could repent of repenting? How severe is that picture in your mind that someone could do an about face to God and then keep going and go all the way back to the things that they had come from? Because think about what happens when we repent. What happens? We renounce the world the flesh, and the devil. We turn away from our idols, we turn away from our sin, and we turn to God. We give the Lord our whole lives, not just part of us, not just a little piece here or there. The whole thing is handed over to the Lord, and we give it to him because we belong to him. He purchased our life by his death on the cross. And then what happened What happened when we had faith? We were adopted into his family. We were made sons and daughters, children, heirs. Remember last week? We were given a life. We were given a family. We were given hope. So what happens if you turn back after all that? Stay with the picture. If you were an adopted child and you were adopted into a family, the child would basically be looking at his parents in the face and saying, after everything that you did for me, I don't want any of it. I want to just go out and live in the streets. I'd rather be a slum in my sin than be a child in the household of God. I'd rather be out there. I don't want to be around you. I want my things that I had before. A child says, I don't want you. We'd recognize both the danger that that child is in now, rejecting this hope of life and family and going to the slums. But think about, we also recognize the grief that the father feels when his child turns away. Paul is warning the church from a variety of angles in this verse here. He's warning them as children, don't go back to the slums of slavery. You've been given a house. 
You've been given a life. I believe in it because of the severity here. He's also appealing to the grief it would cause God to potentially separate from him. Now, theologically right, we have all of our nuts and bolts, right? You can't lose your salvation. Perseverance to the saints. We believe all this. But what I'm saying is there's a tension here that Paul is using to appeal to them to come back. Stop turning away. Come back. Come back. You've been, you've been adopted. He's appealing to their common sense by comparing the character of these enslavers with the character of their God. He says they're weak. What does that mean? It means God is strong. He says they're worthless. This means God is of infinite worth and value and more to be desired than anything. He says that they're enslavers. That means God alone himself is the one who can set us free and he sets us free from all captivity. And not only that, but he provides us with an abundant inheritance in his family. Why would you go back to that, church? You're free. But this is critical. The verse says, whose slaves you want to be once more. It seems to be that this turning back actually reveals a deeper desire in their heart. Albeit a genuine desire that they actually want to be enslaved. They want to be slaves. Because if you didn't want to be slaves, you wouldn't be turning. You'd be focusing on Jesus. And we need to hear this this morning, this warning from the Word of God. And we need to take heed, even though you don't feel like you're turning now, we need to take heed of this warning lest we fall. Our enslavement was real, and the temptations back to it are still very present, and they're going to be present until we see Jesus in glory. They're going to be present. And I think we are all susceptible to these kinds of temptations, but why would somebody want to be enslaved? I think there are three reasons why somebody would want to be enslaved. First, elementary principles are desirable, but they're deceitful. They promise amazing things. Sometimes they might even be good things, like a good relationship with your family. Turn away from Jesus, and you're going to have a good relationship with your family. That's good, right? They're desirable, but they're not from God, and they can't deliver. It's deceitful because their desired end is not your freedom, but only so that they can further enslave you. And in this case, the Judaizers, they're in, in their sin-fueled disbelief, they're proclaiming a gospel to be better than what these Christians have, to be spiritually elite to what these Christians, these Christians and Galatians have. And they're saying, hey, you can have a closer relationship with God if you just keep obeying the, the Mosaic law for, for that relationship. And, and behind that is demonically empowered to deceive the church away from the one true gospel by promising a closer relationship to God than what they can actually have apart from faith in Jesus. They already have a close relationship with Jesus and it's not by works, it's by faith. But listen to the, to the desirable nature of it. Who doesn't want to be closer to God? That sounds right. You have a relationship with God, right? You want to be closer to God, right? You love God, don't you? We'll do this. No, that's not the one true gospel. And before you know it, boom, the chains clamp down on your wrist, the cage closes, and you are enslaved again to something that isn't God and it's not from God in the first place. Second thing, principles are familiar, but they're false. Just because you grew up with it, just because it's common to you, because you understand the lingo, just because you're used to it, your whole family does it, it doesn't mean that it's of God, nor does it mean that it's harmless. It can be real familiar and really harm you. It will not bring you freedom like you desire. It is lying. It's actually false. All of us grew up in churches, uh, not all of us, sorry, some of us, uh, might have grown up in churches where, you know, well-intentioned, I'm assuming, 
but they created regulations that are, that are above Christian, okay? They created regulations on what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to wear, how you're supposed to eat. You name it, there's a regulation that's been created, and if you don't achieve this regulation, somehow you are sub-Christian. So I'm telling you, it may be familiar. It may be familiar religion, but Paul rebukes that way of living in Colossians 2, verse 23. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting, here it is, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Just because you create laws doesn't mean sin's going to stop. We learned that lesson with the Mosaic law. We need the freedom that can only be found in Christ. Christ frees us by his spirit from bondage to those things. We're not going to walk in sin because we know Jesus and we have his spirit in us. Number three, Principles might actually satisfy your cravings, but it's only temporary. It might actually feel good. Legalism might actually feel good or, or whatever it is. Getting some quick response from this little idol that you put a couple things in front of might actually feel good, might feel like you're doing something. If you hold it real close, you can actually feel its warmth next to your body, but it's like chasing a drug and it's never going to give you what you desire. If you're chasing it like that, it's enslaved you. If we put our gospel lenses on and we look at this word want, we recognize that it's actually deception. It's deception. What we want is the Lord Jesus. But these principles are telling me I want them. They want me. They're telling me I want them. But don't listen to the lies, church. Don't go back to that former way of living, that habitual sin that you used to live in, the things you were called out of, worship of self, worship of someone else, worship of relationship, whatever it is, fill in the idol. Don't turn back. Stay committed to Jesus, eyes on Jesus. Think about what Jesus has done. He's accomplished our salvation. Think about this as well. He's put all of his enemies under his feet. That means the sin, the world, the devil that wants to ensnare you, that's trying to pull you back, is under his feet. And now look at this. Those things are slaves telling you to come near just so that they can enslave you too. And they're going to bring you under Christ's feet as well. They want you under Christ's feet. They don't want you reigning with him on his throne by faith. So look to Jesus, saint. Look to Jesus. It's, a good, it's good to stop every once in a while and just check your heart. Just ask yourself, where am I? Am I walking with Jesus? Am I in a good relationship with him? Are there things, are there things tempting me away from God? Are you caught up in some sin pattern? Confess those things to him. And trust him. Repent of it and look to Jesus. Look at his finished work on the cross. You know him. God knows you. This text seems to point to the potential, the possibility that somebody could turn back. There's a degree of choice, a desire there. By your own volition, you could choose to turn back. But you'd be going back to slavery, and slavery will take you to death, separated from God. So don't do it. This text functions like other, other warning passages in the New Testament. One of the best ones is Hebrews 6. People actually taste of the things to come and they just turn away from God. Don't want anything to do with God. The true believer knows God and is known by God and he will never turn back. Both by volition and by God's working his power in him. He will never turn back. They may stumble, but they will be restored. Galatians 6. We're actually going to see that in this, in this uh, book. But the one who knows God will never turn away from him. However... There's a healthy fire here, an encouragement to persevere. Because the scriptures are clear, you need to stay awake. Don't turn away. And these warnings are signposts. They go to tell you that here's the cliff. You go too far, you're going to slip. 
And that's exactly what was happening to Galatians. Look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, this isn't good observation. The Gentiles have begun to observe the Jewish calendar and its prescriptions. Now, the Jewish calendar isn't the problem. That's not the problem. Paul elsewhere encourages believers to live as they are called. If you're a Jew, in this case, it's totally fine. You can continue living culturally as a Jew, but not for a relationship with Jesus. You need to be saved by faith in Jesus. You can live and be a Jew, but you're saved by Christ. Gentiles in the same way. I mean, we think about Acts 15. They're encouraged by the church to abstain from a variety of sinful indulgences that they used to live in, to repent, not do those things anymore, but that's it. That's the extent of the command. Nobody says they need to go and be a Jew now. It didn't say they ought to become Jews. Living as you are called, hear me, church, is God-honoring and that it's good. But in their case, Paul's telling them that going back to the law is actually equally enslaving as the demons that you worship when you were pagans. This is the gravity of what Paul's trying to say. This is how big of a smack they're going to feel when they read this. This would have been shots fired at the Judaizers because this is what they were trying to do. Paul is saying that living lives as legalists or nomists, law-keeping Christians, as a means of attaining favor with God is at best worshiping yourself and at worst worshiping the devil. Either way, pursuing self-righteousness or self-justification or some deeper relationship with God by works or any other means that God does not sanction and not clinging fully and finally to Jesus by faith and walking by his spirit, it's not honoring to God and we should reject it. This is not spiritual wisdom. It's wisdom of the present evil age. It's self-made religion and it's enslaving. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says they, he's talking about these these uh, false apostles, false teachers, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Hear what Peter says. Peter says it would have been better if you never heard the gospel than to have heard it and believed it and then turned back to the things that enslaved you before it. It would have been better not even to hear it. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. Don't turn back. Push through. Look to Jesus. God's grace. Look at, it. Look at God's grace shown to you in bringing you the gospel and bringing you to salvation in his name so that it would not be in vain. And last point, laboring in vain. Verse 11 says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid. Paul actually says, I fear for you. I fear for you. Paul's main concern is not wasted time on his part. His concern is not about his efforts at all or the time he spent there with them. His concern is about their spiritual state before God. This is what's concerning to him. Paul himself, we know from Philippians, he's pressing on. He's continuing in the faith. He's standing fast. His concern is whether they are pressing on, they're continuing, they're standing fast in the Lord Jesus and his gospel, whether they make it to the end or not. That's what he is concerned about. If they don't make it to the end, then Paul's warning would be true. He would have labored over them in vain. 
Now that word labor, you look throughout the New Testament, you can translate it worked harder, labored, labored, doing honest work with your hands. That's a little combination of words there. Toiled. Uh, but all of this, hardworking is another one. This is to say that Paul worked hard among them. He toiled among them with the gospel for the sake of their salvation and the sake of their sanctification. Paul's lifestyle was a lifestyle of labor. And he didn't just do it in Galatia, but he did it everywhere he went. Do you labor like that? Do you labor as a lifestyle everywhere you go seeking to labor for the good of someone else's salvation or labor for the good of a brother or sister's sanctification in the Lord? Do you have a lifestyle of laboring for the kingdom of God? Do you have a lifestyle where you are looking for opportunities to glorify the Lord Jesus and making his name known with whoever it would be? I would encourage you that this ought to be the lifestyle for every believer. Stay-at-home mom all the way to the pastor, to the business, to the CEO, all the way down to the police officer. This is how we are called to live in Christ. We labor where the Lord has put us for his glory, no matter where that is and what he's called us to. We labor for him as a lifestyle. For Paul's labor to have been in vain in this context, this is what would have happened. The Galatian churches would have turned back again to elementary principles. If they left Jesus to go back into slavery, whether it was a result of a sinful rejection of the gospel, their choice under uh, outside influences, or even severe temptation from the devil, they, they turn away. Jesus' warning to Peter matters here for us, church. Jesus says, the devil wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And his mission has not changed. He still wants to sift us like wheat. But we must stand firm with Christ on his gospel. Our Lord will protect us. We cannot revert back to slavery. Otherwise, Paul's labor here would be in vain. And this is another warning sign for them. Did I do it for nothing, church? This is happening to you. You're turning. Danger, stop your turning. Or my labors, if anything, my labors would be in vain over you. Implying also that all the consequences of not knowing God are at full play here. Hear Paul pleading with the church. Hear him. This is a deeply personal comment. We can't neglect the righteous emotion that is driving this. This adds to the warning that we're going to see next week. To say to a people that you love, that you've labored over, that you've spent all all this time, this energy, effort for so long, Pouring into them, discipling them, praying for them, interceding for them, and it all could have been in vain. All of that time, Paul feels the pain of this. He didn't just give a cold catechesis of doctrine to these churches. He lived life with these people. He lived life with them. He did life on life with them. For Jesus' sake, he labored over their souls. He he cared for them. He loved them like Jesus. Loved them where they were before Jesus enough to bring the gospel to them. He loved them where they were after Jesus in the process of sanctification to stay, to to grieve with them in their failures of sin, to to pray with them. We know from the scriptures he always mentioned the churches in his prayers. He was also with them in their victories when they overcame sin, when, when God answered prayer in their life, knowing and loving Jesus together while loving each other. He was there doing good to them and with them and for them and with everyone around them. He labored. And I fear that too many saints in the church today cannot relate to this grief that Paul is experiencing and expressing here. Too many saints have never felt that feeling before of being so close to someone because of for weeks and months and years you've labored over their soul and you've watched God change their life 
They don't have a chance to feel what Paul feels here because they've never labored like this. Don't you want to labor like that? Don't you want to be in that position? Not for the sake of the pain and the sorrow. It comes at great cost. But think about the joy that's there. When you get to see somebody go from deep death to great life and you get to walk with them through the entire process. But because too many saints have not experienced this kind of joyous labor, they can't relate to the crushing weight that Paul must feel in seeing these beloved saints turn back to what they were enslaved before he even got there. It's all a waste. Those people, those churches, whom he loved deeply, were in the process of turning back, leaving the gospel that he brought to them. So not only does Paul make it clear theologically why it's wrong. Sure, he talks about all the theology. But then he shows them his heart. Hear me, church. We ought to labor with so much love that a very real means God uses to bring a straying Christian back to himself is the long history of a deep love and devotion that you've shown to that brother or sister because you labored over them. Imagine for yourself in your own heart the weight of a mentor that you admire. You look up to them, you love them, you care for them, you look up, up to them with all genuine sincerity because they know you. Anything they say, you listen, otherwise they wouldn't be mentoring you. Think about if that mentor came to you and they said, Caleb, I spent all my time laboring over you in vain. Do you feel that? You'd feel that. You'd feel it, and you should feel it. But you'd feel it because you know how much they love you and they, they've wanted good for you for so long. It should be heavy, like a ton of bricks hitting you right in the chest because the Galatians, they loved Paul when Paul was there. They loved him. He labored over them. He loved them. They loved him, at least at the time. And the emotion that dragged behind that is a rich warning to the church yet again. For Paul to use his labor as a warning seems to me that there is both the opportunity for fruitful labor and for vain labor. And it's unclear what the emphasis is here. Is it his labors, his time and energy on them just for them to turn away? Is that what is in vain? Or is it all the labor that they received for their sake? for their benefit, for their grace, just, just to turn back after it all. They just throw it away and forfeit it. It's hard to see what angle to come from, but however you want to take it, I want to finish our time with a few warnings and a few encouragements about laboring. Okay, Two categories, the laborer and the laboree, the one who's labored over. Now, in the New Testament, there's a laboring over in terms of pastors, but I want to use it in a general sense, brother to brother, sister to sister, uh, as a church, including the pastoral sense. But I want to show you this. Here are ways that you can ensure that labor is in vain. You can ensure that your pastor's labor over you is in vain. You can ensure that your fellow brother and sister labor over you is in vain. Here we go. As a laborer, your labor is in vain if you make it about you. If it's about you, when you meet with them and Bible study with them and pray, with, if it's about you, it's all in vain because it's not for the glory of God. Second, if you do it by your own strength, it's in vain. Because you didn't save them. You're not sanctifying them. Jesus saved them. The Holy Spirit sanctifies them. So who's this about? We shouldn't do it by our own strength. Third, you labor in vain as a laborer when you have your best interests in mind, not the person you're laboring over. 
when it's about a number, when it's about a body, when it's about your Bible study, or when it's about how many people you've led to Jesus or anything like that, it's all in vain. Fourth, be passive, not confrontational. When you're laboring over somebody and you're discipling them, you're bound to see sin in their life. They're going to see sin in your life. You're sinners. But when you see sin and you're passive about it, that's a good way for your laborer to be in vain because you're just letting them continue in their sin. You're not confronting them on their sin. By the grace of God, reminding them of the gospel, absolutely. But you need to be confrontational when you're discipling someone toward Jesus. Now, as a laboree, the person who's labored over, here are some ways you can ensure that the labor over you is in vain. First, reject counsel, admonishment, or correction when it's given to you, whether it's given to you from a pastor or it's given to you from fellow laborers. Reject it, and we can ensure that our labor is in vain. Second, ignore warnings about your spiritual health. If somebody says, hey, this is kind of off, what's going on here? Ignore it, just ignore it, and you can ensure that the labor is in vain. Third, devote little to no effort in continuing in what you've already learned thus far or been taught in the Lord. Just devote no time to it. Just keep doing things the way you used to do it. Number four, distance yourself from the ones who labor over you. Just go ahead and put a healthy separation there. The more they try to bring up stuff, just push them farther away. This is how you ensure that labor over you is in vain. Now, the second thing. How to ensure that labor is not in vain? How can we make sure that all this labor that all of us are doing, pastors, members, everybody included, how can we make sure that all this labor is not in vain, it is fruitful? As a laborer, here you go. Make it about Jesus. Make it all about Jesus. Point somebody to Jesus, encourage them to Jesus, read the word, talk about Jesus, pray to Jesus for them, point them to pray to Jesus yourself. Make it about Jesus. Second, do it by the strength that God supplies. That's how Paul worked. That's how he used to minister. We do it by the strength that God supplies, not by our own strength. Third, have their best interests in mind, not yours. What is good for them? What will help them walk closer to Jesus? What will help them be sanctified and grow? Fourth, be confrontational, not passive. We already talked about that. Now, as a laboree, how can you ensure that labor over you is done? Not in vain, it's done fruitfully. One, receive counsel. Receive admonishment, receive correction when it's given to you. When a pastor or a brother, when they bring the word of God and they say, this is what the word of God says and this is how you're living, take that, receive that. Praise God for it because God didn't have to reveal that to you. You could have just kept walking in that and it would have been a problem later on, but the Lord revealed that to you through a faithful brother or sister, so receive it. Second, listen to warnings about your spiritual health. If we just walk around with deaf ears, we're going to a bad place. We can't do that. Third, devote every effort, not just some, but devote every effort to continuing in what you learn, okay? Pursue godliness. Know God's word. Receive what it is that you learn. And don't be afraid of the sin that you find in your heart. That's God showing you that sin. The Lord is showing you that to draw you closer to himself. What does he say in Hebrews Hebrews 12? So that he might share in his holiness. This is God's heart in showing you your sin, that you might repent and be closer to him. Paul himself as a laborer was self-aware, asking hard questions of himself. Did I run in vain? He said that a couple chapters earlier. We talked about that when he brought his gospel to the apostles. Did I run in vain? And he was ready to receive their answer and correct course if he needed to. So let's learn from that example. And then the last one, labor in the Lord now together. Laborer, laboree, you both labor together in the Lord. There's a mutual encouragement There's a mutual love, a mutual edification there for God's glory and for our 
good. Paul cares about the one true gospel. He cares about these churches. And he cares that we remain under the yoke of our Lord Jesus. Because the Lord told us himself, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So let's come to Jesus. Let's pray.